Section 21 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 12. Decay and Fall of the Carlovingians. Part 1. From the death of Charlemagne to the accession of Hugh Capet, that is, from 814 to 987, thirteen kings sat upon the throne of France. What then became, under their reign and in the course of those hundred and seventy-three years, of the two great facts which swayed the mind and occupied the life of Charlemagne? What became, that is, of the solid territorial foundation of the kingdom of Christian France, through efficient repression of foreign invasion, and of the unity of that vast empire wherein Charlemagne had attempted and hoped to resuscitate the Roman Empire. The fate of those two facts is the very history of France under the Carlovingian dynasty. It is the only portion of the events of that epoch which still deserves attention nowadays, for it is the only one which has exercised any great and lasting influence on the general history of France. Attempts at foreign invasion of France were renewed very often, and in many parts of Gallo-Frankish territory, during the whole duration of the Carlovingian dynasty, and even though they failed, they caused the population of the kingdom to suffer from cruel ravages. Charlemagne, even after his successes against the different barbaric invaders, had foreseen the evils which would be inflicted on France by the most formidable and most determined of them, the Northmen, coming by sea, and landing on the coast. The most closely contemporaneous and most given to detail of his chroniclers, the monk of St. Gall, tells in prolix and pompous, but evidently heartfelt in sincere terms, the tale of the great emperor's far-sightedness. Charles, who was ever astir, says he, arrived by mere hap and unexpectedly, in a certain town of Narbonnais, Gaul. Whilst he was at dinner, and was as yet unrecognized of any, some corsairs of the Northmen came to ply their piracies in the very port. When their vessels were described, they were supposed to be Jewish traders according to some. African according to others, and British in the opinion of others. But the gifted monarch, perceiving by the build and lightness of the craft, that they bear not merchandise, but foes, said to his own folk, These vessels be not laden with merchandise, but manned with cruel foes. At these words all the Franks, in rivalry one with another, ran to their ships, but uselessly. For the Northmen, indeed, hearing that yonder was he whom it was still their wont to call Charles the Hammer, feared lest all their fleet should be taken or destroyed in the port, and they avoided, by a flight of inconceivable rapidity, not only the glaives, but even the eyes of those who were pursuing them. Pious Charles, however, a prey to well-grounded fear, rose up from the table, stationed himself at a window looking eastward, and there remained a long while, and his eyes were filled with tears. As none durst question him, this warlike prince explained to the grandees who were about his person the cause of his movement and of his tears. Know ye, my lieges, wherefore I weep so bitterly? Of a surety I fear not, lest these fellows should succeed in injuring me by their miserable piracies. But it grieveth me deeply that, whilst I live, they should have been nigh to touching at this shore. And I am a prey to violent sorrow when I foresee what evils they will heap upon my descendants and their people." The forecast and the dejection of Charles were not unreasonable. It will be found that there is special mention made, in the chronicles of the ninth and tenth centuries, of forty-seven incursions into France, of Norwegian, Danish, Swedish, and Irish pirates, 
all comprised under the name of Northmen, and doubtless many other incursions of less gravity have left no trace in history. The Northmen, says M. Ferriel, descended from the north to the south by a sort of natural gradation or ladder. The Scheldt was the first river by the mouth of which they penetrated inland, the Seine was the second, the Loire the third. The advance was threatening for the countries traversed by the Garonne, and it was in 844 that vessels freighted with Northmen for the first time ascended this last river to a considerable distance inland, and there took immense booty. The following year they pillaged and burnt Saintes. In 846 they got as far as Limoges. The inhabitants, finding themselves unable to make head against the dauntless pirates, abandoned their hearths, together with all they had not time to carry away. Encouraged by these successes, the Northmen reappeared next year upon the coasts and in the rivers of Aquitaine, and they attempted to take Bordeaux, whence they were valorously repulsed by the inhabitants. But in 848, having once more laid siege to that city, they were admitted into it at night by the Jews, who were there in great force. The city was given up to plunder and conflagration, a portion of the people was scattered abroad, and the rest put to the sword. Tours, Rouen, Angers, Orléans, Meux, Toulouse, Saint-Lô, Bayeux, Evreux, Nantes, and Beauvais, some of them more than once, met the fate of Saint, Limoges, and Bordeaux. The monasteries and churches, wherein they hoped to find treasures, were the favorite objects of the Northmen's enterprises. In particular, they plundered at the gates of Paris, the abbey of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, and that of Saint-Denis, whence they carried off the abbot, who could not purchase his freedom save by a heavy ransom. They penetrated more than once into Paris itself, and subjected many of its quarters to contributions or pillage. The populations grew into the habit of suffering and fleeing, and the local lords, and even the kings, made arrangements sometimes with the pirates either for saving the royal domains from the ravages, or for having their own share therein. In 850 Pepin, king of Aquitaine, and brother of Charles the Bald, came to an understanding with the Northmen who had ascended the Garonne, and were threatening to lose. They arrived under his guidance, says M. Ferriel. They laid siege to it, took it, and plundered it, not half-wise, not hastily, as folks who feared to be surprised, but leisurely, with all security, by virtue of a treaty of alliance with one of the kings of the country. Throughout Aquitaine there was but one cry of indignation against Pepin, and the popularity of Charles was increased in proportion to all the horror inspired by the ineffable misdeed of his adversary. Charles the Bald himself, if he did not ally himself as Pepin did with the invaders, took scarce any interest in the fate of the populations, and scarcely more trouble to protect them, for Hincmar, Archbishop of Rheims, wrote to him in 859, Many folks say that you are incessantly repeating that it is not for you to mix yourself up with these depredations and robberies, and that every one has but to defend himself as best he may. It were tedious to relate or even to enumerate all these incursions of the Northmen, with their monotonous incidents. When their frequency and their general character have been notified, all has been done that is due to them from history. However, there are three on which it may be worth while to dwell particularly, by reason of their grave historical consequences, as well as of the dramatic details which have been transmitted to us about them. In the middle and during the last half of the ninth century, a chief of the Northmen, named Hastenk or Hastings, appeared several times over the coasts and in the rivers of France, with numerous vessels and a following. He had also with him, say the chronicles, a young Norwegian or Danish prince, 
Björn, called Ironsides, whom he had educated, and who had preferred sharing the fortunes of his governor to living quietly with the king, his father. After several expeditions into western France, Hastings became the theme of terrible, and very probably fabulous, stories. He extended his cruises, they say, to the Mediterranean, and having arrived at the coast of Tuscany, within sight of a city, which in his ignorance he took for Rome, he resolved to pillage it, but not feeling strong enough to attack it by assault, he sent to the bishop to say he was very ill, felt a wish to become a Christian, and begged to be baptized. Some days afterwards his comrades spread a report that he was dead, and claimed for him the honours of a solemn burial. The bishop consented, the coffin of Hastings was carried into the church, attended by a large number of his followers, without visible weapons, but in the middle of the ceremony Hastings suddenly leapt up, sword in hand, from his coffin. His followers displayed the weapons they had concealed, closed the doors, slew the priests, pillaged the ecclesiastical treasures, and re-embarked before the very eyes of the stupefied population, to go and resume, on the coasts of France, their incursions and their ravages. Whether they were true or false, these rumours of bold artifices and distant expeditions on the part of Hastings aggravated the dismay inspired by his appearance. He penetrated into the interior of the country and Poitou, Anjou, Brittany, and along the Seine, pillaged the monasteries of Jumege, Saint-Vaudrille, and Saint-Evrule, took possession of Chartres, and appeared before Paris, where Charles the Bald, entrenched at Saint-Denis, was deliberating with his prelates and barons as to how he might resist the Northmen, or treat with them. The chronicle says that the barons advised resistance, but that the king preferred negotiation, and sent the abbot of Saint-Denis, the which was an exceedingly wise man, to Hastings, who, after a long parley, and by reason of large gifts and promises, consented to stop his cruisings, to become a Christian, and to settle in the countship of Chartres, which the king gave him as an hereditary possession, with all its appurtenances. According to other accounts, it was only some years later, under the young king Louis the Third, grandson of Charles the Bald, that Hastings was induced, either by reverses or by payment of money, to cease from his piracy, and accept in recompense the countship of Chartres. Whatever may have been the date, he was, it is believed, the first chieftain of the Northmen who renounced a life of adventure and plunder, to become, in France, a great landed proprietor and a count of the kings. Prince Bjorn then separated from his governor, and put again to sea, laden with so rich a booty that he could never feel any want of wealth, but a tempest swallowed up a great part of his fleet, and cast him upon the coast of Friesland, where he died soon after, for which Hastings was exceeding sorry. A greater chieftain of the Northmen than Hastings was soon to follow his example, and found Normandy in France, but before Rolf, that is, Rollo, came and gave the name of his race to a French province, the piratical Northmen were again to attempt a greater blow against France, and to suffer a great reverse. In November, 885, under the reign of Charles the Fat, after having, for more than forty years, irregularly ravaged France, they resolved to unite their forces in order at length to obtain possession of Paris, whose outskirts they had so often pillaged without having been able to enter the heart of the place, in the Ile de la Cité, which had originally been, and still was, the real Paris. Two bodies of troops were set in motion, one under the command of Rollo, who was already famous amongst his comrades, marched on Rouen, the other went right up the course of the Seine, under the orders of Siegfried, whom the Northmen called their king. Rollo took Rouen, and pushed on at once for Paris. 
Duke Renaud, general of the Gallo-Frankish troops, went to encounter him on the banks of the Eure, and sent to him to sound his intentions. Hastings, the newly made Count of Chartres, "'Valiant warriors,' said Hastings to Rollo, "'whence ye come? What seek ye here? What is the name of your lord and master? Tell us this, for we be sent unto you by the king of the Franks.' "'We be Danes,' answered Rollo, "'and all be equally masters amongst us. We be come to drive out the inhabitants of this land, and to subject it as our own country.' But who art thou, thou who speakest so glibly? Ye have sometime heard tell of one Hastings, who, issuing forth from amongst you, came hither with much shipping, and made desert a great part of the kingdom of the Franks? Yes, said Rollo, we have heard tell of him. Hastings began well, and ended ill. Will ye yield you to King Charles? asked Hastings. We yield, was the answer, to none. All that we shall take by our arms we will keep as our right. Go and tell this, if thou wilt, to the king, whose envoy thou boastest to be. Hastings returned to the Gallo-Frankish army, and Rollo prepared to march on Paris. Hastings had gone back somewhat troubled in mind. Now there was amongst the Franks one Count Trebold, Tybalt, who greatly coveted the countship of Chartres, and he said to Hastings, Why slumberest thou softly? Knowest thou not that King Charles doth purpose thy death because of all the Christian blood that thou didst aforetime unjustly shed? Bethink thee of all the evil thou hast done him, by reason whereof he purposeth to drive thee from his land. Take heed to thyself that thou be not smitten unawares. Hastings, dismayed, at once sold to Tetbold the town of Chart, and removing all that belonged to him, departed to go and resume, for all that appears, his old course of life. On the 25th of November, 885, all the forces of the Northmen formed a junction before Paris, Seven hundred huge barks covered two leagues of the Seine, bringing, it is said, more than thirty thousand men. The chieftains were astonished at sight of the new fortifications of the city, a double wall of circumvallation, the bridges crowned with towers, and in the environs the ramparts of the abbeys of Saint-Denis and Saint-Germain solidly rebuilt. Siegfried hesitated to attack a town so well defended. He demanded to enter alone and have an interview with the bishop, Goslin. Take pity on thyself and thy flock, he said to him, but let us pass through this city. We will in no wise touch the town. We will do our best to preserve for thee and Count Udes all your possessions. This city, replied the bishop, hath been confided unto us by the Emperor Charles, king and ruler under God, of the powers of the earth. He hath confided it unto us, not that it should cause the ruin, but the salvation of the kingdom. If, peradventure, these walls had been confided to thy keeping— as they have been to mine, wouldst thou do as thou biddest me? If I ever do so, answered Siegfried, may my head be condemned to fall by the sword and serve as food for the dogs. But if thou yield not to our prayers, so soon as the sun shall commence his course, our armies will launch upon thee their poisoned arrows, and when the sun shall end his course, they will give thee over to all the horrors of famine, and this will they do from year to year. The bishop, however, persisted, without further discussion, being as certain of Count Eudes as he was of himself. Eudes, who was young but recently made Count of Paris, was the eldest son of Robert the Strong, Count of Anjou, of the same line as Charlemagne, but lately slain in the battle against the Northmen. Paris had for defenders two heroes, one of the church and the other of the empire, the faith of the Christian and the fealty of the vassal, the conscientiousness of the priest and the honour of the warrior. The siege lasted thirteen months, whiles pushed vigorously forward with eight several assaults, whiles maintained by close investment, 
and with all the alterations of success and reverse, all the intermixture of brilliant daring and obscure sufferings, that can occur when the assailants are determined and the defenders devoted. Not only a contemporary but an eye-witness, Abbo, a monk of Saint-Germain-de-Prés, has recounted all the details in a long poem, wherein the writer, devoid of talent, adds nothing to the simple representation of events. It is history itself which gives to Abbo's poem a high degree of interest. We do not possess, in reference to these continual struggles of the Northmen with the Gallo-Frankish populations, any other document which is equally precise and complete, or which could make us so well acquainted with all the incidents, all the phrases of this irregular warfare between two peoples, one without a government, the other without a country. The bishop, Goslin, died during the siege. Count Eudes quitted Paris for a time to go and beg aid of the emperor, but the Parisians soon saw him reappear on the heights of Montmartre with three battalions of troops, and he re-entered the town, spurring on his horse and striking right and left with his battle-axe through the ranks of the dumbfounded besiegers. The struggle was prolonged throughout the summer, and when in November, 886, Charles the Fat at last appeared before Paris, with a large army of all nations, it was to purchase the retreat of the Northmen at the cost of a heavy ransom, and by allowing them to go in winter in Burgundy, whereof the inhabitants obeyed not the emperor. Some months afterward, in 887, Charles the Fat was deposed, at a diet held on the banks of the Rhine, by the grandees of Germanic France, and Arnulf, a natural son of Carloman, the brother of Louis III, was proclaimed emperor in his stead. At the same time Count Eudes, the gallant defender of Paris, was elected king at Compagna and crowned by the Archbishop of Seine. Guy, Duke of Spoleto, descended from Charlemagne in the female line, hastened to France and was declared king at Langres by the bishop of that town, but returned with precipitation to Italy, seeing no chance of maintaining himself in his French kingship. Elsewhere Basso, Duke of Arles, became king of Provence, and the Burgundian Count Rodolphe had himself crowned at St. Maurice, in the Valais, king of Transjuran Burgundy. There was still in France a legitimate Carlovingian, a son of Louis the Stutterer, who was hereafter to become Charles the Simple, but being only a child, he had been rejected or completely forgotten, and in the interval that was to elapse ere this time should arrive, kings were being made in all directions. In the midst of this confusion, the Northmen, though they kept at a distance from Paris, pursued in western France their cruising and plundering. In Rollo they had a chieftain far superior to his vagabond predecessors. Though he still led the same life that they had, he displayed therein other faculties, other inclinations, other views. In his youth he had made an expedition to England, and had there contracted a real friendship with the wise King Alfred the Great. During a campaign in Friesland he had taken prisoner Rainier, Count of Hanault, and Aberade, Countess of Brabant, made a request to Rollo for her husband's release, offering in return to set free twelve captains of the Northmen, her prisoners, and to give up all the gold she possessed. Rollo took only half the gold, and restored to the Countess her husband. When, in 885, he became master of Rouen, instead of devastating the city, after the fashion of his kind, he respected the buildings, had the walls repaired, and humoured the inhabitants. In spite of his violent and extortionate practices, where he met with obstinate resistance, there were to be discerned in him symptoms of more noble sentiments, and of an instinctive leaning towards order, civilization, and government. After the deposition of Charles the Fat and during the reign of Eudes, 
a lively struggle was maintained between the Frankish king and the chieftain of the Northmen, who had neither of them forgotten their early encounters. They strove, one against the other, with varied fortunes. Eudes succeeded in beating the Northmen at Montfaucon, but was beaten in Vermandois by another band, commanded, it is said, by the veteran Hastings, sometime Count of Chartres. Rollo, too, had his share at one time of success, at another of reverse, but he made himself master of several important towns, showed a disposition to treat the quiet populations gently, and made a fresh trip to England, during which he renewed friendly relations with her king, Athelstan, the successor of Alfred the Great. He thus became, from day to day, more reputable as well as more formidable in France, insomuch that Eudes himself was obliged to have recourse, in dealing with him, to negotiations and presents. When, in 898, Eudes was dead, and Charles the Simple, at hardly nineteen years of age, had been recognized sole king of France, the ascendancy of Rollo became such that the necessity of treating with him was clear. In 911, Charles, by the advice of his counsellors, and amongst them of Robert, brother of the late King Eudes, who had himself become Count of Paris and Duke of France, sent to the chieftain of the Northmen Franco, Archbishop of Rouen, with orders to offer him the cession of a considerable portion of Neustria and the hand of his young daughter Gisla, on condition that he became a Christian and acknowledged himself the king's vassal. Rollo, by the advice of his comrades, received these overtures with a good grace, and agreed to a truce for three months, during which they might treat about peace. On the day fixed, Charles, accompanied by Duke Robert and Rollo, surrounded by his warriors, repaired to St. Clair sur Epte, on the opposite banks of the river, and exchanged numerous messages. Charles offered Rollo Flanders, which the Northmen refused, considering it too swampy. As to the maritime position of Neustria, he would not be contented with it. It was, he said, covered with forests, and had become quite a stranger to the ploughshare by reason of the Northmen's incessant incursions. He demanded the addition of territories taken from Brittany, and that the princes of that province, Beringer and Allen, lords respectively, of Redden and Dell, should take the oath of fidelity to him. When matters had been arranged on this basis, the bishops told Rollo that he who received such a gift as the Duchy of Normandy was bound to kiss the king's foot. Never, quoth Rollo, will I bend the knee before the knees of any, and will I kiss the foot of no one. At the solicitation of the Franks he then ordered one of his warriors to kiss the king's foot. The Northmen, remaining bolt upright, took hold of the king's foot, raised it to his mouth, and so made the king fall backwards, which caused great bursts of laughter and much disturbance among the throng. Then the king and all the grandees who were about him, prelates, abbots, dukes, and counts, swore in the name of the Catholic faith that they would protect the patrician Rollo in his life, his members and his folk, and would guarantee to him the possession of the aforesaid land, to him and his descendants for ever." after which the king, well satisfied, returned to his domains, and Rollo departed with Duke Robert for the town of Rouen. End of chapter 12, part 1